picking up this morning. If you're new, we, we are working our way through Luke's gospel account slowly but surely. We've been going after it for about a year now, and we are in chapter 12, if that tells you anything in terms of how much longer we're going to be in Luke's gospel account. Uh, I don't have time to catch us up to speed uh, in, in the expounded way this morning. Suffice it to say that we're at the place in Luke's gospel account where Jesus has been performing uh, miracles galore. Uh, he has been ministering to the masses. And uh, somewhere a couple chapters back, Jesus set his face like flint to Jerusalem and uh, began to march his way down the Calvary Road, uh, which is headed, as most of us know, toward a cross and an empty tomb. And that's where we are now as Jesus begins to dive into these teachings with the disciples of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it truly is to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him. Some of the heaviest words in Scripture we've been sitting with for the last few weeks, and it doesn't get lighter. You heard some of the things I mentioned that, that will come up this morning before all is said and done. Jesus has just pronounced, to, to get into some of the heaviness of it all, uh, just pronounced woes to the scribes and Pharisees, exposing both their hypocritical religious practices and burdensome interpretations of the law. Um, the Pharisees, uh, we've talked about this numerous times now, they thought highly of themselves and their perceived righteousness. And yet going back to the language of last week's passage, they were leading others to the pit of death, unmarked graves that they were. Likewise, the lawyers or the, the scribes thought highly of their interpretations of the law, and yet they were not only misinformed themselves, but they were leading others away from a right understanding of the knowledge of God. As you can imagine, going back to last week, the scribes and Pharisees, they aren't very happy with Jesus at this point. Right? They've just been rebuked. They've just been insulted publicly, now committed all the more to teaming up in an effort to try to trap Jesus, to get him to say something that, that might uh, indict him, something they can use against him. It's a foreshadowing of the cross to come. Luke chapter 9, verse 22, Jesus has already predicted it. We know where this story's headed. It's in that context that we pick up in chapter 12 with these words. Chapter 12, verse 1. In the meantime, Luke tells us, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. All right, Jesus draws such a crowd that you, know, you may as well have been mosh pitting. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know how this is possible after what he's just said. Right? He's just pronounced woes on uh, religious hypocrisy, burdensome interpretations of the law. Maybe there were a lot of burdened people, a lot of people carrying the weight of what the Pharisees and, and scribes were prescribing for them. Some heavy words on Jesus' part, and yet he draws this swarming crowd. And what does he do? He, he doesn't speak to the crowd, but first he looks at his disciples and he exhorts them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. That, that imagery of leaven hearkening all the way back to the story of the Exodus. Love this about the Bible. If you've been around our church long enough, you know we, we trace themes throughout the scriptures. You see them from the story of creation to the fall of man to redemption that's found in Jesus Christ all the way to the consummation of all things in the end when Jesus returns. This is one of those things, leaven. You see it throughout the scriptures going all the way back to the story of the Exodus, a significant moment in redemptive history. Many of you know the story well. Closing out the book of Genesis, the scriptures tell us that God's people were forced to enter Egypt as a result of a famine. 
And at first, the relationship between the Egyptians and the Israelites was cordial, but over the course of time, that relationship changed, and the Israelites found themselves enslaved. They found themselves oppressed. And this went on for several hundred years in the land of Egypt, but it didn't fall on blind eyes and deaf ears as the Lord saw the affliction of his people, and he heard their cry. And he raised up Moses as his ambassador to command Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let God's people go. And not only did Pharaoh refuse to do so, but he increased the heavy burdens on God's people. And so God, in order to demonstrate his power, brought a series of plagues upon Egypt. Many of you know the story. The plagues went from bad to worse, culminating in the the tenth and final plague, the death of the firstborn. God said to Moses, I'm going to bring about redemption, and and here's how it's going to play out. I want you to tell each uh, Israelite household to take a lamb, and not just any lamb, but a lamb without blemish. And each one is to kill that lamb without blemish and smear its blood on their doorposts. And that lamb is going to act as their substitute. Judgment is coming upon the, the land of Egypt. No one's exempt. It's either the blood of the lamb or the blood of one's firstborn son. And as the story goes, the Israelites did as God commanded. And that night, God struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, those whose front door was not covered by the blood of an unblemished lamb. That night being one of the the great pivotal moments in the story of the Exodus, the night that God established Israel's freedom from enslavement to Egypt. Over a million Israelites, think about this, walking away from over 400 years of bondage. It's a moment in redemptive history that, that establishes one of the great motifs in Scripture. God bringing about freedom from enslavement, freedom from chains, Story that finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who Paul says is our Passover lamb, the true Passover lamb, the lamb without blemish or spot, who gave his life in the shedding of his blood, that God, in his righteous wrath towards sinners, might pass over us, that, that we might be set free, not from the shackles of Egypt, but from the chains of Satan, sin, and death. Coming back to that original Exodus story, In the wake of God having set the Israelites free, they were commanded to eat unleavened bread the week following Passover each year. Why unleavened bread, you might ask? Well, for one thing, as a reminder of what what God did when he freed the Israelites in turning the tables so quickly that they didn't have time for the dough in their kitchens to become leavened before they had to leave Egypt. So that eating unleavened bread would remind them of what God did in reversing their fortunes in an instant. In addition, the Israelites would have known that that leaven spreads throughout dough and has a way of affecting everything with which it comes into contact. As the Apostle Paul says, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, there's that imagery, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul uses leaven as being symbolic of, of evil, of sinful indulgences. Paul says, Jesus bought you with his precious blood. In light of that truth, it's time to get rid of the corruption within you. Or another way we might say it in its original context, coming back to the Old Testament story of the Exodus, the goal was not simply to get Israel out of Egypt, but to to get Egypt out of Israel. You tracking with me? 
The goal was not simply to remove the Israelites from the land of foreign gods, but to remove the foreign gods from the hearts of the Israelites. If you come back to this morning's passage, with that in mind, Jesus warns his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, as hypocrisy has a way of spreading like a cancer. Again, going back to last week, Jesus has just declared that the Pharisees are unmarked graves, thinking highly of themselves and their righteousness, and yet not only were they dead inside, but they were leading others to the pit of death, spreading the cancer of their unleavened hypocrisy everywhere they went. Beware of such hypocrisy, Jesus says. He goes on. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Hypocrisy cannot, will not stand the test of time, Jesus says. Everything will be brought to light in the end, on the day of judgment. The inner death and decay will be exposed, even in the most outwardly pious of hypocrites. The author of Hebrews says it this way, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That we will stand before the Lord someday and give account. And all that is hidden behind a facade of righteousness will be revealed. If you're not a Christian, and we don't need to go any further in this morning's passage. Today, as the author of Hebrews says, is the day of salvation. Today is the day to confess your sins, including the ones that no one else is aware of but you as you come into this place this morning. Today is the day to repent of your sins and to turn to Jesus in trust for forgiveness. The the forgiveness that can only be found in him. He goes on. And again, it doesn't get lighter the content of Jesus' words. I tell you, my friends, verse four, do not fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Remember, Jesus is talking to his disciples here. Here Jesus revealing that Religious hypocrisy, it's not the only kind of hypocrisy, but rather that there's a hypocrisy that reveals itself when persecution comes. Here's the tie-in. Here's here's what ties in all of these verses together. He's drawing from the religious hypocrisy of last Sunday that we looked at and now saying there's a danger for you too, you who profess to follow me. It's a hypocrisy that denies Jesus as the scribes and Pharisees have, uh, but one that's exposed by the dangers of suffering. For the sake of Christ, very different motivations here than the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus knows that that his disciples will themselves soon face persecution just as Jesus will. And so he exhorts them not to fear those who might persecute them, those who have the power to kill the body, but rather to have a right fear of the Lord, the one who has the authority to cast a person into hell. There are many in, the, in this world who don't believe in the existence of hell. This is one of the few times in Luke's gospel account that he speaks of, of hell. Jesus is not one of those people who doesn't believe in the existence of hell. He believes that hell is real and worthy of our consideration. The word Jesus uses for hell, it's the Greek word Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom. 
There was a place uh, just southwest of Jerusalem by that name, uh, the place where Solomon instituted the worship of Molech, the god of one of his wives. Molech expected child sacrifice so that the valley of Hinnom was set ablaze and children were, were burned alive on the regular. Following the days of Solomon, the prophet Jeremiah called King Josiah to return to God. And in his doing so, the valley of Hinnom became a, a sewage and trash heap, a place to dispose of, of dead animals and unburied criminals, a place of constant perpetual burning as the never-ceasing fire would, would keep the air from becoming tainted with the awful smell of garbage, sewage, dead bodies, Jesus says hell is like that. And the symbol represents a reality far worse. But based on the scriptures, we know a few things to be true about hell. For one, we know that it's a place of separation from God. As Paul tells us that unbelievers, 2 Thessalonians 1.9, will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That those in, in hell... And think about this, just so sobering, that those in hell will experience that which Jesus himself would go on to experience on the cross for the redeemed, what it is to be forsaken by God. Second, we know that hell is a place of severe suffering. Consider the story of the rich man and Lazarus, where the rich man is described as being in torment. What does that mean? Well, on the one hand, we can't know with with great specificity, what the torment of hell will be like apart from experiencing it for ourselves. On the other hand, do we really need a concrete definition of torment in order to respond appropriately? Third, we know that hell is a sentence of punishment, which assumes a guilty verdict on its inhabitants. As God pronounces a sinner apart from Christ guilty in his cosmic courtroom, and that sinner receives his or her sentencing Namely, banishment to hell and all that hell encompasses. The punishment, 2 Thessalonians 1.9, of eternal destruction. Fourthly, and I just alluded to it, we know that hell is eternal. Jesus uses the language of an unquenchable fire, an undying worm. Revelation 14.11, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. This morning's passage, it's sobering. Jesus doesn't skip over these words and on to the next feel-good statement. Nor do we as we work our way through books of the Bible as a church. Jesus calls for a right fear of the Lord, a reverence toward God that sees beyond this life to the life to come. Knowing that his disciples are going to face real persecution, great persecution. And with that, the temptation to prize this life more than the one to come proving themselves to be hypocrites in the end, as would be true of Judas. He goes on, and here is where some comfort comes in. Verse 6, he says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Having just spoken of a right fear of the Lord, Jesus speaks words of comfort in giving expression to God's care for his people. We should fear God in the sense of reverence, love, and, and humility leading to obedience, and yet we should fear not. R.C. Sproul in his commentary says, 
Fear God, but in that fear of God, don't think that under the gaze of God, you are reduced to insignificance. Even though God knows everything about you as a believer, and that includes the stuff no one else sees, he places a value upon you as his child that is incalculable. On the one hand, we should fear him, a sort of Aslan-like reverence for him. On the other hand, we should, fear, we should not fear, he says, because he has redeemed us in his sight. That's good news. We can stand before the Lord and not have to hide ourselves behind a facade of fig leaves, so to speak. You and I, we, we not only bear the image of God, the imago Dei, the crown and glory of God's creation, more significant than birds, but more than that, we're beneficiaries of his great work of redemption, in Christ recipients of his saving grace. If God doesn't forget about the cheapest of birds, will he forget about you? Will he fail to take notice of you? By no means. No matter how hard things might get. He knows things about you. He knows things about me that we don't know about ourselves. Including the number of hairs on your head. Every, every head in this space and outside of this space. Let that blow your mind. He's sovereign over your life. He loves you with reckless abandon, Christian. And that doesn't change when life gets hard. That doesn't change in those dark nights of the soul. In the disciples' case, when persecution comes. He continues, verse 8, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Here Jesus gets to the heart of the matter, reminding us yet again that there's no third option. Right? We either acknowledge Jesus before men or we deny him before men. Every day uh, presents us with an opportunity to acknowledge Christ, to declare and to display our commitment to him. To say, yes, I'm with Jesus. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary, says, The difficulty of confessing Christ is undoubtedly very great. It never was easy at any period. It never will be easy as long as the world stands. It is sure to entail on us laughter, ridicule, contempt, mockery, enmity, and persecution. The world which hated Christ will always hate true Christians. But whether we like it or not, he says, whether it be hard or easy, our course is perfectly clear. In one way or another, Christ must be confessed. As Jesus said back in chapter 9, verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. There is no third option. Luke has shown us that numerous times over. If we live our lives ashamed and embarrassed before others, of Jesus whom we proclaim to follow, when he returns, he will be ashamed of and embarrassed of us before the angels. Okay, that's the bad news. The good news, and, and let your mind and heart get wrapped up in the wonder of this, if we live our lives unashamedly proclaiming Jesus as Savior and Lord, the one whom we worship, the one whom we bow to, the one whom we trust in for forgiveness, when he returns, Think about this. He will unashamedly declare before the angels, he's mine. She's mine. 
That's unreal. Before the angels of heaven. If we acknowledge him, he will acknowledge us on that day. Glory, hallelujah. He continues, verse 10. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. That's a strange follow-up to verses 8 and 9, right? How can it be that a, a person could speak a word against Jesus and be forgiven, and yet a word of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit be unpardonable? I mean, Jesus has just said we must acknowledge him before men. You remember the, the demon-possessed mute man whom Jesus healed back in chapter 11? Not that far in the rearview mirror. A healing that the scribes and Pharisees attributed to the power of Satan. Well, in Matthew and Mark's gospel accounts, Jesus' statement regarding blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it comes on the heels of the scribes and Pharisees making that statement, that accusation against Jesus. Right, the religious leaders, they had seen Jesus perform miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle in demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power. Miracles attesting to the true identity of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. And yet they willfully and intentionally rejected the Holy Spirit's attesting power, attributing it to the devil himself. Louis Burkhoff in his systematic theology helps to make sense of this unpardonable sin. He says, The sin consists in the conscious, malicious, and willful rejection and slandering against evidence and conviction of the testimony of the Holy Spirit respecting the grace of God in Christ, attributing it out of hatred and enmity to the prince of darkness. He goes on, in committing that sin, man willfully, maliciously, and intentionally attributes what is clearly recognized as the work of God to the influence and operation of Satan. Such blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, is to a person's destruction. Those who out of hate and hostility attribute uh, the Christ-attesting power of God to the devil of hell. I mean, we're talking about such a hardness of heart here that those who fear that they've committed such a sin give indication by their sorrowful concern that they have not. Jesus goes on in verses 11 and 12. He says, and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Here Jesus is not giving permission to lazily prepare Sunday sermons or Bible studies, though many have treated these words of Jesus as such. Rather, it's a promise that the Holy Spirit will give Christians the words to say should they find themselves staring in the face of persecution. Like Peter in Acts chapter 4, as he stood before the Sanhedrin, and he boldly, filled with the Spirit, said to them, Luke tells us in the book of Acts, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, that's bold, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, another pass at the boldness, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
the Holy Spirit emboldening Peter to declare the exclusivity of Jesus Christ and to, to declare sinners guilty of nailing him to the cross. Peter's spirit-empowered words of witness followed by Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Peter himself says to always be prepared to make a defense, 1 Peter 3.15, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. But apparently there are some situations for which we cannot script our words ahead of time, in which case we can trust the Holy Spirit to help us. You see the contrast between attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to the devil himself and trusting the Holy Spirit for empowerment, for the ability to proclaim and attest to just who Jesus truly is? We don't have to rely on our own strength. We don't have to rely on our own power. The Spirit of God is happy to embolden the people of God to proclaim the Son of God. Let me say that again. The Spirit of God is happy to embolden the people of God to proclaim the Son of God. To acknowledge Jesus before men. Most of us will will never know anything close to the kind of persecution and suffering that the, the disciples would go on to experience. They got nothing out of the deal according to the world's standards. In proclaiming that Jesus had risen from the grave. They got mocked. They got beaten. They got imprisoned. They were put to death in torturous ways. Early Christian tradition tells us. Andrew preached the gospel to the Scythians. Modern day Georgia and the Thracians. Modern day Bulgaria. And was crucified on an egg shaped cross. Bartholomew preached the gospel to the people of India and left them with Matthew's gospel account before he was skinned alive and beheaded. James, son of Alphaeus, was beaten and stoned by the Jews while preaching in Jerusalem, and this didn't kill him, so they bashed his head in with a club. James, son of Zebedee, beheaded with a sword by Herod while preaching in Judea. John, one of the few who wasn't martyred, Founded many churches, was captured and taken to Rome where he was put in a cauldron of boiling oil. He miraculously survived, tradition tells us, and was exiled to the island of Patmos where he died of old age. Matthew, preached in Ethiopia, was chopped apart by a weapon called a halberd, which was essentially a spear with an axe blade attached. Matthias was elected to fill the place of Judas Iscariot. What did he get for it? He was eventually stoned in Jerusalem and beheaded. Philip preached in eastern Turkey and was scourged, thrown into prison, crucified upside down by the emperor Domitian. Simon the Zealot preached the gospel in Egypt and Persia where he was crucified. Thaddeus was martyred in Mesopotamia. Thomas preached in India and was thrust through the four members of his body with a pine spear. Mark who wrote one of the four gospel accounts, was literally dragged and torn to pieces by the people of Alexandria. Stephen, the first post-resurrection martyr, he was stoned to death in the street at Passover in the spring following Jesus' crucifixion. Peter, crucified upside down at his request by the emperor Nero while preaching the gospel in Rome. And last but not least, Luke, who wrote the very gospel account that we're studying as a church right now was hanged to death from an olive tree in Greece. 
Every one of those men acknowledged by Jesus before the angels. You talk about a weight of glory that makes this light momentary affliction seem what it truly really is. Which is light and momentary. We may never face that kind of persecution. We may never face that kind of suffering. At least not anytime soon. But God is asking us to, to take a stand in far less painful ways in acknowledging Christ before men. If we've truly seen and savored Jesus to stand for righteousness in the workplace, maybe share the gospel in the break room this very week, to be an ambassador of Christ and speaking over the fence with our neighbors, to tell an unbelieving friend or family member about the hope that's found in Christ alone. As Peter said, there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We can look at the persecution itself, and that's one thing. But what does that say about the treasure that Christ is? The glory, the wonder, the beauty of the multifaceted gospel, the beauty of Jesus in all of his diverse excellencies. It really, it really puts us to the mat in terms of whether or not we've seen Jesus for who he truly is. Will we acknowledge him before men? If so, he will acknowledge us before angels. My goodness. Have courage. Take heart. If I could speak in a, in a Trinitarian language, and we see it in this morning's passage, I, I would encourage you with these words. In closing, with one, one of the heaviest passages of Scripture we've ever sat with as a church. Let's say, God the Father knows and loves you down to the hairs on your head. God the Son shed his blood for you that you might be forgiven of all your sins, both hidden and revealed. And God the Spirit will help you when courage is needed and you don't know what to say. And we have everything we need in the triune God. 